Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. I hope that this Tuesday is treating you well. Uh, my name is Brandon Stiver. Welcome to the show. Uh, normally, as you guys are aware, you hear from my co-host, Phil Dark, at the top of the show. But Phil is not with us today. Uh, so I'm doing my best to replace him by adding not just one guest, but three guests as we dive into a second of our conversations episode. I would love if you're listening to this and maybe you checked out our previous conversation around Central America, forced migration, family separation that is really uh, having a large effect in Northern Triangle and and even affecting uh, US uh, on our Southern border. Uh, If you enjoyed that conversation, I'm really excited for you to hear uh, in this one as well. And I'll introduce our guests in just a moment. If you don't mind, uh, definitely hit uh, subscribe, like, leave a review, uh, do the things that are going to help us uh, reach more people with uh, with content that helps direct them as they also seek to serve orphan, vulnerable, and separated children. Um, I'm excited to jump into this conversation today. I've got uh, three professionals uh, coming from three different uh, ministries focused in other areas of the world. And uh, what we're going to be getting into today is HIV AIDS and its continuing effect on uh, families and on children, and uh, really kind of taking a pulse of what are the needs of people uh, in communities in different parts of the world. Um, so with me today, um, I have Brent Phillips, who is the CEO of Cherish Uganda. I have Dan Stair, who is the executive director at Reach Ministries in the United States, and Anna Jackson, who is with um, in Honduras with Montaigne de Luz. Uh, and as I have been able to touch base with each of these different ministries and see how the story of HIV uh, has really kind of uh, impacted their respective ministries, um, I'm just really excited to get them in conversation with one another. So uh, all of you are warmly welcome and thanks for jumping in. Uh, Dan and Anna, this is your guys' first time. Brent, you are a veteran, so uh, thank you guys uh, for for joining us. Um, you know, as we get into this conversation, I just kind of wanted to share a little bit of kind of my heart and kind of coordinating this conversation and and even, you know, the, the previous conversation and future conversations. You know, the heart of Think Orphan is really around collaboration. It is really around, you know, how can we come together as one community Uh, you know, whether you're coming from the nonprofit space, the government space, or you're just a concerned individual in the community, how can we all kind of come together and better serve orphan and vulnerable children? And really, we recognize that this uh, is going to vary as you go from one context to another. So um, with HIV AIDS, it's one of those, um, you know, factors and one of those realities that has had a very strong and unique role when it comes to childhood vulnerability. Um, so, and yet at the same time, you know, to some, in some respect, the issue has become, you know, uh, has almost kind of faded to the background in some circles because of the increase in antiretroviral therapies and so forth. Um, and sometimes those families that are infected, that uh, children and individuals that are infected, as well as families that are affected by HIV AIDS, um, we don't always necessarily, uh, 
you know, think what is this, how does this issue continue to, uh, to, to pervade? So, um, I just kind of wanted to, uh, share, just kind of set the table a little bit as far as, you know, what, what's the current status of HIV AIDS. And then we're going to hear from Brent, Dan, and Anna, as far as how they see this in their respective ministries and work. Um, but just a few stats, and we'll share this uh, article that I'm about to pull from. Uh, this is from the UN AIDS um, article. Um, in 2021, there were 38.4 million estimated people living with HIV. So we continue to talk about upwards of 40 million people throughout the world, uh, including 1.5 million new infections. So in 2021, so obviously this is 2023. We all recognize that this is where we have the most recent data. Um, and 650,000 people died from AIDS-related illnesses in 2021. So this is not gone away. Obviously, we just came through a a global pandemic of COVID-19 and we'll kind of touch on, you know, some of the intersections between those two health crises uh, in this conversation. Um, But just because we started talking about COVID-19 and just because ART has been so readily available, it does not mean that all of a sudden HIV AIDS is not still also wreaking havoc. We're talking about 650,000 people in a single year. Um, 40.1 million people have died from AIDS-related illnesses since the start of the epidemic, right? So that's over 40 million people um, that have passed. And about 5.9 million people did not know that they were living with HIV in 2021. So we're going to talk a little bit about the awareness as well. Um, There's other stats. About 75% of people living with HIV were accessing treatment. Um, New HIV infections have been reduced by 54% since the peak in 1996. So uh, obviously, I'm just reading off some stats here. You guys can check this article in the show notes. I'm just trying to set the table and give you guys a few statistics that our listeners can forget uh, as we get into the conversation. But the the, the big picture is that uh, this continues to be a really significant issue and continues to be a significant issue for orphans, vulnerable children, and vulnerable families. So, um, you know, I can't think of another area where this is more evident than in sub-Saharan Africa. So I'm going to come uh, first to, to to Brent. So Brent, welcome back to the show. Thanks for jumping into this conversation with us. You know, as we think about HIV AIDS and you reflect on your guys' own ministry in Uganda, um, can you just tell us, you know, how have you seen the reality around HIV AIDS change over the last 15 to 20 years or, or just kind of over the life of your guys' ministry there in Uganda? Yeah, it's changed quite a bit. I mean, we we started working with HIV kids and families in 2007, and um, our ministry is in a fishing village, very impoverished fishing village, and just in in our particular village, in that particular context, you know, the prevalency rates, you know, well over 50 percent, um, just because of of fishing and a lot of time on their hands, a lot of impoverished women who will do just about anything to feed their children. And um, what we've seen over the course of the years is Uganda as a country did a really good job initially just prevention, 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 billboards, and just really helping people understand how to prevent. Um, And the, the issue that still continues, so I feel like as a country, that, that has helped a ton. It's been a great thing. 
Um, what hasn't really been dealt with and continues to be the issue is the stigma. So once, um, for one, to get tested, people aren't real excited to go get tested. And then once they are tested, then the process of treatment. So that stigma really kind of continues to be a problem. So numbers have dropped substantially, um, which is great number of infections, even in a community like ours that has such a high prevalency rate. But we're still running into, like we have these, we have uh, in our clinic, you know, obviously you can come in anytime and get tested. And we have HIV counseling and art therapy and the whole deal. But we also do these things called Nicodemus outreaches where we set up a tent in the village in the, at night and we'll be there from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. And then people can basically wander over there in the dark and get tested because it's still such a stigma in in our in our culture. Um, so prevalency rate definitely dropping um, prevention that's just continues to move forward. Well, stigma probably the biggest issue that we find ourselves battling with. Yeah. And I, I feel as though that stigma is something we're going to circle back around. Uh, I think I maybe had mentioned that the last time we talked about HIV AIDS was uh, in an episode earlier this year that we had with Jeff Rogers when he had done a documentary looking at HIV AIDS in Papua New Guinea. And uh, that stigma piece was really um is, was really significant. So, um, you know, I was recently reading about uh, the role that PEPFAR played. So if you guys are not familiar with PEPFAR, um, this is the president's emergency plan for uh, AIDS relief. Uh, and it made a tremendous impact. Uh, this was under the Bush administration. Um, and Christianity Today did a great article on this in their May-June issue that I'm going to just pull a quote from here really quick. The name of the article is When Politics Saved 25 Million Lives. And this is uh, this this is going to be in the show notes as well. Um, but just to use two other African, you know, uh, context in Botswana and South Africa, life expectancy dove by about a decade as HIV took over in the 1990s. We are threatened with extinction, Botswana president uh, at the time said in 2002, uh, with at that time, 39% of adults in his country were infected with HIV. So, I mean, this was just and this was, you know, early on before ARTs were really um, significant, uh, were really uh, widely distributed. And PEPFAR was really one of those programs in certain countries that made those available. So we certainly thank God for that. And also thank God that apparently our U.S. government can still get stuff done every now and then. But I don't know. That was 20 years ago. So we'll see about now. Um, I want to come to Anna. And Anna, can you just share with us a little bit about what you've seen in, in Honduras and in Central America, you know, in what ways is it maybe similar from what Brent was saying? In what ways is it kind of unique? Sure. Yeah, the stigma is definitely our biggest obstacle. Um, the first case of HIV in Honduras was documented in 1984, and we did not receive any um, HIV medication until 2003. So there is this nearly 20-year gap um, where transmission was quite high, um, by 1998, Honduras had the highest rates of HIV in Central and South America, and at that time was dubbed the Forgotten Africa in terms of attention and funding. Um, Honduras is, is a small country. It's not, um, it wasn't necessarily on the radar in terms of funding and international aid. Um, today, we're lucky that all medication is free through the government, um, but stigma is certainly the biggest obstacle 
Um, testing can only be done in certain places, which can be difficult for people that live in rural areas to access treatment and to access testing. Um, and stigma is certainly an obstacle that deters people from even wanting to get tested or pick up their medications. You know, within that, Anna, I mean, are you guys, how is, what does transmission look like? What is, you know, there's the stigma, which as you and Brent have both said, really kind of um, compels people to kind of keep some of these services, you know, at arm's distance, but in the event that they actually are open to getting tested, are open to receiving services, what does that look like in Honduras? Um, it takes a lot of effort from kind of grassroots mo- um, organizations like us to get out into the field and to encourage people and to offer things like transportation or medical drop-offs or, you know, we offer someone to sit with you through your appointment. If you're not sure of what questions to ask, or if you're not understanding your treatment regimen, it takes a lot of effort from nonprofit groups to get out into the field and get people to the necessary treatment centers. Yeah, I think that's that's helpful to understand. And, you know, when we think about treatment, um, you know, obviously the three of us are Americans. Uh, a lot of our listeners are also based in the U.S. I would love to come to Dan and just kind of, you know, what does this environment look like? as it pertains to the United States. And, and, you know, you can even share a little bit about what Reach Ministries does. But, um, you know, in the U.S., this conversation can look a bit different around HIV, AIDS, and, you know, various types of medications are available. So maybe you could just kind of give us a little bit of an idea of what this looks like and, and even, you know, the work that Reach is doing. Yes, thank you. Well, the the operative word uh, in this discussion is stigma. And um, to to define that a little more uh, clearly, uh, what we see uh, is outright rejection, oftentimes malicious, uh, nasty uh, treatment, uh, isolation, uh, sometimes even still in the United States, some some physical uh, bullying and things, uh, which is remarkable because the fact is the United States, I mean, the medications are readily available as a as a as a virus. It's actually a fairly wimpy virus. It doesn't really transmit quite as easily as many other viruses would. Uh, yet, um, people are, every year at Reach we welcome many new families with very recent heartbreaking stories of isolation, rejection, bullying, uh, to the point where families have to switch schools for their kids, or if a family is a, a Christian family, find in a new church. Um, so it's still very real. And I, we often let people know that in the United States, uh, there are still 1.3 million people living with HIV, and there's 35,000 approximately new diagnoses every year. So it hasn't gone away. And that's usually what we hear from folks when we share about reaches. Oh, I thought that problem was solved. I didn't realize it was still there. Um, <clears throat> And if you think about 1.3 million people, the population of the United States is 300 and some million. So one in 300 people in the United States has HIV. So, you know, it's not every other person, certainly, but it's not rare either. And the, the thing about the stigma is when people feel like, well, I don't know anybody with HIV. I don't even think I know somebody who knows somebody with HIV. That's probably not true. It could be your closest friend who is just choosing to keep it private uh, because what we know through REACH and our 28-year history is when people 
disclose their HIV status, they will, no questions about it, experience some rejection and isolation. And so uh, people try to keep it private. And this is a real challenge for families with children that how do I talk to my kids about we're going to keep this private without it sounding like it's a secret, which means there's something to be ashamed of. So that's a major uh, parenting challenge. Uh, but the stigma, too, is here. Um, we see things like teens and young adults who decide to stop taking their medications and they know the medication is keeping them healthy, their immune system healthy, and, and they'll live a long and healthy life. But it's the, what they tell us is it's that every day I take that pill or pills and I see it and it's a constant reminder, I'll always have HIV because there's not a cure yet. And I would like to just forget about it. And I always presumed that meant, well, that means you're still thinking about it. But we had one young man a few years ago that was in the hospital near death and he did recover uh, remarkably uh, with probably eight different infections and one a form of cancer. And uh, and he, in his hospital bed, said, I can't explain this, Dan, but all these last months when I kept getting sick or I couldn't shake the cold or the cough, it never once occurred to me it was my HIV. And um, I like to think I kept a neutral face. I probably didn't. Uh, but that was the depth uh, to which he was really kind of divorcing himself from that reality in his life. Um, so real quickly, Reach, we're, we're here to just provide uh, safe community. Uh, we're all about, you know, the, the, the stigma damage here is psychological, social, and emotional. And we know that as Christians, uh, we're, we're a Christian ministry that we're created in God's image. And that means we're meant to be in communion with him and each other. And we also know Christ commanded us to love in the way that he loves. So uh, our issue is if you have HIV, your life is challenging on many levels. And the antidote to being isolated, rejected is to have safe community. So we just through a lot of programs, if you want, I can share, but uh, we just journey alongside families on a regular recurring uh, basis. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And and you mentioned something even in that really poignant story that you shared there, Dan, around the isolation. And isolation itself has kind of become a very prevalent uh, uh, thing that takes place in just society at large. And I can only imagine all the more so if somebody is HIV positive, feeling that they need to hide it from certain people. Um, you know, it has some changes to their lifestyle. And, you know, when we think about isolation, we're not just thinking about, you know, the siloing effect that we kind of see throughout our uh, throughout our society. But we also think about the COVID-19 pandemic, which was very isolating. I would be interested to just kind of hear and any of you can kind of jump in on this next one. But, you know, in what ways did the COVID-19 pandemic affect care or um, affect uh, just the realities for people that are living with HIV AIDS, you know, in your community? You know, what did what did this look like for each of you? Maybe I'll uh, stick with Dan uh, just for the moment. Dan, you know, what did what did it look like when those two things came together for families that you guys are serving through REACH? Yeah, COVID-19 was very triggering for uh, folks with HIV here. Um, 
As far as uh, care goes, care probably improved because those teens and young adults I just told you about who chose to stop taking it uh, were very scared right off the bat, you know, that they were going to get COVID-19. If you remember the early days of COVID-19, we didn't really know what was causing it or spreading it and how dangerous it was going to be. So um, we had some conversations with people in reach that I need to get to my doctor. I need to get back on my meds. Uh, the other triggering component of it was uh, the news was all about infection rates and death counts, and they kept showing the picture of the actual virus. And the the picture of the actual COVID-19 virus is very similar to the AIDS virus. So seeing that picture on the TV over and over again was just very triggering for folks. So. Uh, our instant challenge was we're all about relationship at REACH and staying connected with folks. And all of a sudden, we had to cancel everything that we do in person, face-to-face. -face. Uh, but I would say, honestly, it strengthened our work because we found all those ways, like Zoom and others, to, to stay connected. And it's been powerfully effective. And we started online support groups, which we never thought was a possibility. And uh, so it strengthened us, and we'll keep doing all those things. But um yeah, it, it was a scary time for, for a lot of our folks. And, I, and we had the opportunity to share with folks when we're trying to explain to everybody else in our society what it's like to live with HIV. We had something to point to now. It's like, you know how you feel when you have to cross the street and you're worried about being in contact with somebody? That's what people with HIV are living with every day. Wow, that's a really um, powerful uh, comparison, uh, you know, Brent, I remember, you know, having you guys in our community of practice and hearing about what it looked like in Uganda when things went into shutdown mode. What did that mean for families that you guys were serving, including those that were receiving, you know, ART or, or other medical services? Yeah, it made it difficult just because um, people don't have access to Zoom and other connectors. The, the connector was the on-site. That's where you came to get your meds. That's where you came to get medical care is where you came for community and all of a sudden everything is shut down and um, but it did is it switched for us rather than people coming to us it had us now going to them and you know you're you you gone to shut down the only thing you could do is move on a bicycle or walking and so it, it made it really difficult to get to people and there's no way that people were able to get permission to come to pick up their drugs. It was just the government's like, nope, tough luck. And so, but we were able to get permission to actually go to them. So we all of a sudden are now on backs of motorcycles with food and drugs and counselors and moving out into the community to connect with people. So it was hard. I mean, you already have a vulnerable um, segment of society and now you throw COVID-19, lockdown, all the fear and anxiety that came with that. Like that was, a really difficult time for a lot of our people and it took did we learn and grow from it i would say yes um but not without a lot of suffering from a lot of people in the process of us just banging our head against the wall within government offices trying to get permission to go out and actually keep this these meds you know yet meds have to happen twice a day and you know our typically we give out one month's worth of meds at a time. That's all that we're able to give. So that's ends up, which is good because you have a lot of connection with people when they're coming in for appointments and giving their art. But when all of a sudden they can't come in, that really, that, that, that was a tough time. 
This episode is brought to you by the Attachment and Trauma Focus Therapy online course by Deborah Gray. I've mentioned this training to you all before as it is a premier resource covering an array of topics in attachment, trauma, grief, and loss. We are excited to share that we have just moved the course over to our Journey Home platform with great learning options for both parents and clinicians alike. It is a full-length accredited postgraduate program with over 20 hours of training, and it is critical information for those of us in this sector. The Attachment and Trauma-Focused Therapy program was produced by One Million Home and is available in partnership with Honestly Adoption and Cascadia Learning. We have locked in the course for just $99. Such a bargain. There are also additional options for professionals needing to get continuing education units or who want to join a live casing group. Not only that, but for listeners of Think Orphan, use the coupon code THINKORPHAN, one word, all lowercase, to get an additional $10 off. Go to onemillionhome.com front slash ATFT to sign up or just click the link in our show notes. I'm wondering from you or Anna or even Dan, you know, when it comes to transmission rates, right? I shared some stats on the top of the show around transmission rates. Um, you know, Dan was sharing that, you know, people actually became a little more proactive. So that's good. You know, thank God for that. But what did what did this look like? Did this have an effect? Are there any long term ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic? Did transmission rates go up, down? What did that what did that look like? Anybody want to jump in on that? I would just be curious. Yeah, I can jump in. Um, We are seeing a slight increase in transmission rates as a result of the pandemic, primarily in vertical transmission. Um, Like both of them said, the lockdown was really, really scary. Um, And Honduras already has a really fragile healthcare system. And the way that HIV medication works in Honduras is you have to pick it up at a specific center. They're called SAI, um, abbreviated to SAI. And they're really not accessible for a lot of folks that live in the rural areas where a lot of the families that we work with live. Um, And public transportation had also shut down. So people were rationing medications, going without medications. And our staff members are also, some of them are the primary caretakers for kids in our care. So them isolating was really important to us. So a lot of our staff members were not able to go into the field and check in on our families or do medication drop-offs or connect them to the services that they need. The hospitals were just totally overloaded. Um, And then on top of that, in 2020, Honduras was hit by two um, back-to-back Category 4 hurricanes, which at the time displaced nearly 25% of the Honduran population. And there was a formula shortage. So we were seeing families that were already maybe living in poverty or extreme poverty kind of be plummeted into ultra-poverty. And, and as a result, we're seeing um, higher rates today in vertical transmission. Yeah, and Anna, I'm going to ask you, you know, when you say vertical transmission, I know what you mean, but maybe not all of our listeners do. But you also mentioned, right. you know, baby formula in there, which also ties in. Maybe you just kind of want to sh- uh, uh, explain to our audience a little bit about, you know, what vertical transmission is um, and other ways that, you know, the virus can spread, especially in the midst of, you know, such severe crises as what you just described in Honduras. Sure. Yeah. So we're talking about the transmission of mother to child. Um, so in Honduras, if you um, are a pregnant mother, it's estimated that one in eight pregnant women in Honduras are living with HIV. Um, it is required that they have a cesarean birth. Um, but depending on viral loads, 
or depending on their ability to get to a safe hospital in time. Um, it's, it's not, we, we are still seeing um, mothers transmit HIV to their, to their babies. And then also with breast, with breast milk, which is a way that HIV can be transmitted. A lot of the families that we work with don't have access to clean water. And with a formula shortage, um, they may be forced to decide between breastfeeding my child or mixing formula or lack of formula with unclean water. And, and those mothers will breastfeed. Yeah. So thanks for explaining that further. Um, You know, my wife is actually a lactation specialist. So I think about this from time to time. Um, Brent, you know, you guys actually have a birthing center um, at at Cherish. You know, what does that what does that look like for you guys as you guys are actually not only providing this community and follow up and case management? but actually providing medical services as well. Um, what does that look like and how do you guys help mitigate transmission um, and follow up with, uh, with families and, and patients that you guys are serving? Yeah, well, our birthing center is just this close to opening up. We're doing all the prenatal care, all the postnatal care, and we hope in the next couple of months to actually be having deliveries. But the reason we're doing that is because that is the number one um, means of transmission in Uganda is mother to child. And so if, if a mother can give birth in a clinic like ours, that is, is enables that mom to give birth to an HIV negative baby, like we're closing, we're shutting off the faucet, um, the largest faucet in our community. And so there's, and you know, with that HIV care, there's nutrition and there's clean water. And like, it is, it's, it's amazing that it's not just, here's your drugs, everything should be fine you know there's this whole scope of care and so for us to be able to have a clinic where we can really kind of drill down deep into that has radically really changed our community and not because oh we showed up and we changed our community but i mean god has just grabbed a hold of that and really used that medical care just purely just education helping people understand this is what happens and this is how you prevent it. Here's if you have it, here's how we're going to mitigate it. Most of our patients, we get down to near undetectable viral loads. And here's the process that we do to get to that point. And just providing hope just because for most people, when HIV means death and to, to rewrite that story, okay, that is not the story that does not need to be your story. And here's how we're going to rewrite the story together. And just the hope and for to point at people and go, you're surrounded by people here that are HIV positive. Would you know it? No, you wouldn't. Because these people are taking a hold of their health care and doing their part. And we're moving forward. And just that change in story has been um, so, so important. That that hope piece has been massive. Yeah. And, and along with that hope is that education and awareness component that, that really kind of seems integral. I want to come to Dan and, you know, Dan, what does that look like in, in your neck of the woods and specifically, you know, in the U.S. where this can look a bit different? This is probably one of the biggest differences uh, between what's happening in the United States and what Anna and Brent are sharing. Uh, in the United States, it's a fraction of 1% of HIV uh, cases are children being born with it anymore uh, <clears throat> because the medications are so good. And uh, 
normal prenatal screening in the United States is all the blood work, lab work that's done uh, when a woman becomes pregnant. And sometimes that's when the mom discovers that she is HIV positive. So you can imagine that conversation, but she can go on the medications uh, during pregnancy. And then the baby is put on medications for a while, monitor for a few months after birth. Uh, so it's uh, nearly zero uh, percent. Although in reach, we do have two toddlers who were born in the United States with HIV, and those happen when mom doesn't have access to healthcare uh, during the pregnancy and, and birth. Um, but it's very rare. So that's that's really great news. Uh, our transmission rates are. Uh, Probably, I was just looking at some statistics, about uh, three quarters is through sexual transmission. Um, no, more than that, I'm sorry, about 93%. Uh, the other 7% is uh, sharing needles, uh, you know, abusing drugs. Uh, and, and also, just like perinatal th through the birth process, uh, blood supplies are safe in the United States, so a transmission uh, the transfusion won't result in HIV transmission here anymore either. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad that you uh, make that uh, comparison because I think it is it's really important for us to understand. And going back to that um, same kind of uh, what I was sharing earlier around how um, this looks in key populations. So. Um, I'm just going to read again. So uh, key populations. So this would be, and I'm just, I'm the, I, I know there's different terms for all of these things. I'm just going off of United Nations. So nobody get too upset with me on the terms that I use here. Um, sex workers and their clients, gay men and other men who have sex with men, uh, people who inject drugs, transgender people and their sexual partners accounted for 70% of HIV infections globally which is 94% of new HIV infections outside of sub-Saharan Africa. So this is exactly what you were just sharing a moment ago, uh, Dan, and something that we really should kind of understand when we compare, you know, Western populations with those in the global South. Um, and that those same populations were 51% of new HIV infections in sub-Saharan Africa. So the risk of acquiring HIV, um, and again, as uh, as as people that are faith based, um, you know, people that are following Christ, you know, our our response should always be to lead with compassion, loving, serving our neighbor. The risk of acquiring HIV is 35 times higher among people who inject drugs than adults who don't. 30 times higher for female um, sex workers than adult women, 28 times higher among gay men, and 14 times higher for transgender women. So. Um, that's, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it kind of begs the response, like, how do we, you know, when, when there is, you know, that horizontal transmission, um, you know, and a lot of it does come through, you know, activities um, that as Christians, we might say, hey, that, that might not be the right activity or the right, you know, way for you to be moving forward and you know i'm trying to be very diplomatic in how i talk about this but again our response should be to move forward with love and compassion and serving our neighbor i would just be interested if anybody wants to catch this grenade um you know how do we how do we also uh 
you know, interact with with those individuals and, and how has this uh, played out in your guys' ministries? Brent, why don't you speak to that for a second? It's always good to start with a pastor and then I'll go to Dan next. <laughs> well, for us, um, we have, we would view Cherish Uganda as a spiritual transformation ministry that works through medical education and social work. And so we believe the foundation of all health is uh, discipleship. Now, of course, you can be a passionate follower of Christ and encounter all kinds of health issues for sure. But we feel like the life of Jesus is a clear picture of this is how God wants us to live. And Jesus kind of gave his example of those three years of life and his kind of manifesto with the Sermon on the Mount of this is how you live your life. And so that that is leading for us. And we obviously deal with felt needs as they walk in the door of our clinic and press into those. But then we start immediately following and pressing into spiritual needs because we believe that that is the foundation of a life that's going to produce the kind of life that we're all actually looking for. And so we feel like that's just a key, key, key component. Now, in that process, we do end up talking about those behaviors that these behaviors lead to these things. And we're very frank and honest with that and help people understand um, that. Um, and at the same time, you have this loving God who's walking with you, as are we. And we're, we want to walk through this with you and help transform your life into something different. And so some want to, some don't. And that doesn't stop us from, like you said, just loving and caring for them as we walk and still speak the kind truth over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, I would just say that, you know, in the last four decades, uh, people with HIV AIDS have been very deeply, deeply wounded by some Christians and, and some churches, certainly not all, uh, but there's a lot of, a lot of pain there. Uh, and, I mentioned earlier, you know, Christ commanded us to love in the way that he loved, which is a pretty high bar. And that's what Reach is trying to do. Uh, we are a Christian ministry, but many of the people we serve and many of our hundred plus volunteers don't necessarily share our faith. Uh, the issue is if you have HIV, we're here for you. Uh, and so when I, when I talk to churches or Christian groups, Questions I often get are around those behavioral questions like, yeah, but aren't they making life choices that lead to them getting HIV? Um, I politely <laughs> say, so what? You know, the, the issue is that they have it and we're called to love. Uh, and also just to dispel some of that myth. I mean, we have people in reach who are HIV positive because they were abused by someone who was positive. So the idea that it's a choice is not really uh, completely valid. Um, but yeah, just responding in love. And we know, I mean, we don't preach and proselytize because uh, we want everybody who needs safe community acceptance to feel welcome at REACH. Uh, but we also know that when they are with REACH, whether they realize it or even want to acknowledge it, they are experiencing Christ because uh, this, is a, this is a community that is genuinely supportive of each other and it's a safe, judgment-free zone. And people just don't have it. And other aspects of their life. So uh, that's really what we're here for. But um, we don't, we just don't engage in, well, how did you get it? Why do you have it? We don't even have that conversation unless they want to share it with us. 
Yeah, that's really well said, Dan. And I just really appreciate your guys's approach because it is sensitive, right? We we understand that that this is a sexually trans that one of the transmission is through sexual contact, and um, you know even when I you know mention you know, the, the term was female sex workers, but a lot of those are people that were forced and trafficked into those positions. Or there was, as you said, Dan, an issue of sexual assault that led to uh, transmission. Um, and even if it is, you know, a, a lifestyle choice or what have you, again, I just so appreciate the way that you articulated that we lead with love and we don't, we don't judge. We, we, we go in and we, we serve and we love and we say, Hey, this person needs help, right? How can I help this individual? How can I connect them with community? Dan, uh, uh, Brent, how would you, how would you speak to that as well? Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree to that. I think that, um, this idea that everybody has a story, um, you know, we have many women in our community that are, they have children who aren't eating and the things that these women will do to feed their kids. And until you look at the eyes of of a woman like that and you look in the eyes of her kids, do you not go, you know what? I might do the same. Like (laughs) to, to just thrust it into this big kind of umbrella thing of like, that is a bad thing. You should not act like that. Stop it. Um, Like there are some just deep seated cultural issues. There's some desperation that has caused people to do desperate things and to to be, I think the body of Christ is to stand there and go, come here, come here. Just, we're going to walk this with you. And there's no judgment, no condemnation. And that, that this is not what you think it will be, which is most people walk in head hung low, you know, this is what they're going to say. And so it's taken years for people to understand that, oh, that's not what's going to be said when you walk in there. It's different. Yeah, and I just wanted to uh, make share one thought about uh, sexual transmission. I'll be as delicate as I can, but um, there's, there's nothing inherently risky regarding HIV by being gay or lesbian or, you know, it, it's not not a difference in their physiology. It's it's in the sexual act. The receiver is far more susceptible than the penetrator, and I'll just leave it at that. So globally, women are at the highest risk. Um, but um, you know, that's I, I I like to share that just because you know it, it's not it, again. I want to take it away from the behavioral choice kind of thing, and it's just uh, the the anatomy and the science of it. Well, no, and I appreciate that, Dan. And I think it's important that we, especially in in an episode where I invited you guys here so that we can have a delicate conversation and hopefully raise the awareness and the education around HIV AIDS. And because it is a physical uh, a physical condition, um, that means we need to also have some awareness. So I, I really appreciate you framing it that way, Dan. In my mind, that makes sense, but I've never heard somebody frame it so articulately and yet simple to understand. So I I really appreciate that. You know, I I do want to get back to what I hear from each of you is such a significant thing. Um, 
And, you know, I want to actually, I want to talk about stigma, but in a moment, uh, before we get to the stigma piece, I actually want to come to Anna. Um, Anna, you had shared something with me previously around medical services and types of drugs that are available. So I would love if you could just share a little bit about what that has looked like in Honduras. I mean, I could talk with Dan and a lot of the families that Reach is ministering to. They have any number of different you know, antiretroviral therapy, even preventative medications that can help prevent, you know, the transmission of HIV. And yet that hasn't been the story in Honduras. Can you just share a little bit about, you know, what this has looked like for Montaña de Luz and the communities that you guys are serving in? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said previously, in 2003 is when we gained access to HIV medication. So, um, and Montani de Luz, MDL, we opened our doors as a hospice. Um, we wanted to be a safe place for children with advanced HIV or HIV complications to pass peacefully, surrounded by medical professionals and loving caretakers. Um, that was who we were in our first couple of years. And so when we gained access to medication in 2003, um, it was a huge blessing. And we were you know, able to transition our mission um, but that medication in Honduras has not advanced since that date. Um, so a lot of the medication, um, Honduras, as a result of that, has some of the highest HIV-resistant rates in the world. Um, we are constantly getting everyone that's on our caseload and the kids in our care to get their viral loads checked to make sure that whatever treatment regimen they're on is working for them and is continuing to work with them for, for them. Um, but that's not the case for some of the people we work with. You know, we have to work with SAI, as I previously mentioned, to get medications from other countries, um, from hi higher income countries that can ship medication to us to keep our families and our kids at an undetectable level of the virus. It's extremely frustrating um, that this medication has not advanced. It is hard on their digestive systems. It is hard with sleep, with paying attention in school, with all kinds of things. Um, and some of our kids take a huge handful of meds each day, which as we previously said, taking a pill twice a day is a reminder that you are living with HIV and has serious mental consequences on some of the people we work with. Yeah, no, I just really appreciate you um, highlighting that. And and uh, as I've gotten to just know Montana de Luz just a little bit over the last month or so, um, you know, for those that are familiar with the work of One Million Home, we talk a lot about residential facilities that can trans uh, transition to becoming family care. I know that you guys have gone through that as well. Typically, we're talking about orphanages. Your guys' transformation is so unique, and I just commend uh, the team there in Honduras. You guys went from a, hot, a children's hospice to an orphanage to a family-based uh, care provider, and I just think that's really an incredible uh, transformation and not one that I hear about all the time. So, Anna, thanks so much for sharing a little bit about your guys' own journey as an organization. Um, I want to circle back on this stigma piece because apparently whether it's Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, or right here in the United States, this stigma is significant. Um, so how does that, what are some things that you guys have seen as far as that obstacle specifically? And what are some things that could potentially, or that you've also seen that maybe help 
alleviate some of the hindrances that stigma, you know, creates within these communities? Is there a is it a need for education? Is it a need for awareness? Is it a need for um, what 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 what's what are the implications of this stigma um, that each of you guys articulated even from the onset of this episode? Uh, I'll come back to to Brent here. Brent, what is what does the stigma uh, look like, and what are the implications there? Yeah, the stigma is, I think, like both Dan and Anna mentioned, this is the biggest thing we're struggling with, <clears throat> and um, we have found that the the best thing that helps to shift that is for our people to hear stories of people who've pushed through it and are on the other side. Um, when we, when we can gather people to stand up and say, Hey, I have HIV. This is what my life looks like. And I, I do push through and take my meds. Even if somebody watches me, I do come in to pick up my medication and here's the benefits of it. We have found that that is what changes more people's view of stigma than us and our medical people doing constant trainings and talking through it. And here's the stats and here's the data. And there's a place for that. But those stories do the most change. And it doesn't change everybody. I mean, we've have just heartbreaking stories of people, you know, of grandmothers locking their HIV negative or HIV positive grandchild in a room, you know, and letting them die there as we're begging, standing in the living room, please let us help and the police to get involved. And the police are like, that's all right, sir, kid. Can't do anything about it. Like, I mean, just heartbreaking stories because what stigma will drive people to do. Um, it's insane. It's just demonic. And um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it really highlights stigma isn't just simply an attitude. I mean, there are mm-hmm. dramatic physical uh, mm-hmm. harm you know, that comes, yeah. uh, including yeah. that story you just shared. Yeah. Cause it's stigma, like my own stigma of I have HIV and now what are people going to think? But then there's the family stigma of I have a child who has HIV and now what are people going to think? And I have a church who lets people who have HIV here. Like it's just, it just, is, it just rolls into all of it and it's all based on lies. That's the crazy part. It is not, it is not often based on truth. And so it is just a constant battle that we fight. And I wish we had, you know, like, this will fix it. Um, we haven't found that yet. Um, but we have found the most effective is just people sharing their stories, many, many people sharing their stories. And that just encourages some of our people to go, okay, I think I might be able to push through this. Yeah. And, and Dan, I would be interested just kind of like looking at the trajectory of this narrative really around HIV and what is it? What effect does it have? What communities suffer from this? You know, if we were to go back to the 80s and we think of, you know, a, a, a pop culture icon like Freddie Mercury, you know, and we think like that was that was what HIV was, you know, in the 80s. You know, it took one of our best rock stars, you know, kind of thing. Um, I'm a diehard Lakers fan, you know, so when Magic Johnson, you know, said I'm HIV positive, look in the early 90s, that was like, that was like a death knell, you know, and it was just kind of like, what, you know, like, so, you know, kind of coming from that, those are kind of the initial American perceptions of what HIV AIDS is. And as we got into the nineties and the two thousands, I referenced PEPFAR and, you know, um, 
you know, there's the, then you get kind of the celebrity like Bono that's really advocating for these medications to be made available in Africa and other places. Apparently, Honduras got skipped for whatever reason. Uh, but uh, the, you know, there's kind of been this narrative over the last few decades that has kind of propelled forward. But here we are in 2023 and we continue to have, you know, almost 40 million people that are HIV positive throughout the world, including Americans. I mean, what does the stigma look like now when we have had, you know, 30 plus years to really kind of talk about what is this virus? What can, you know, what does it mean for this community or that community or um, even American society at large? Yeah, stigma is certainly, it's a broad social context. So there's been a lot of conversation around HIV and advances, but most people in the United States aren't hearing those conversations. It's not in the news anymore. So what you you said is exactly right. The the American consciousness around HIV is HIV equals gay men. I mean, I I have these conversations all the time, and that's what people are assuming. And, And beginning... At the beginning of the epidemic in, in the 80s in the United States, women had it. Kids were being born with it. And I personally don't remember ever hearing that in those years uh, as that was evolving. Um, the we, had, we have a major funder who, who asked me recently, it was, we've been funding you for a year. We've been funding REACH for a year. Certainly it's getting better. It must be getting better even among younger generations who are more accepting of more social issues and things. And I said, well, all I can tell you is what I just said a few minutes ago. Every year we welcome many new families into REACH with very recent stories. You know, like, yeah, last week this happened to my me or my children. Um, so I, I told them that, it's these are when you talk about younger generations these are parents who are in their 30s or 40s and kids are at school so uh, my only explanation for it is because it's not discussed it's not in the headlines people don't have accurate information so when you actually meet somebody with hiv all that panic from the 80s and 90s comes flooding back and then it's instant rejection and i'm always intrigued when families share with us that They've adopted a child who's HIV positive from somewhere in the world, and they think they can disclose to their closest friends about the HIV, and friends instantly say, well, we can't be around you anymore. And they don't even ask questions about, aren't you worried about yourself and your other children? You know, how can you make this decision? They don't even ask. They just leave, uh, which is just remarkable to me. Yeah. yeah. And so we have we have families who adopt a child and and can tell one set of grandparents about the HIV and can't tell the other because they know that set of grandparents won't accept the child. Uh, so imagine living with that. Yeah, no, that's very, very sad reality. Um, and I want to point our listeners to one resource. We're not doing our normal recommendations like Phil and I typically do on the show, but um, there was a book that was written. It's a little dated now, um, but I thought it was really helpful. Um, this is a book by Phyllis Kilborn. If you guys are familiar with her work, she has a lot of important uh, uh, work looking at different vulnerabilities and, and risk factors that children go through throughout the world. But she wrote a book uh, several years ago called Children Affected by HIV AIDS. 
uh, compassionate care. Um, so I would definitely, if you guys want to learn more about this, it includes stories like what, um, you know, from, from early on in the epidemic, uh, like even what Dan is, uh, speaking to, you know, where people would get a blood transfusion, you know, and they didn't realize that the blood had HIV, uh, virus in it, you know, those types of things where, they didn't do anything wrong. You know, a, a person had a medical condition, needed a blood transfusion, and then got this really terrible virus from it. Um, so there's there's a lot of complexity here. Um, we always need to lead with compassion. Um, Anna, I would love to kind of hear from you in Honduras. Um, you know, how how what have you guys found effective to kind of mitigate, you know, some of the stigma uh, to, you know, reach communities in Honduras. Um, yeah. What, what does that look like for you? I mean, it's a big obstacle. Stigma is, as we often say, is more dangerous than the virus. Um, something that's been really effective in our work is this is a program that we call Charla Luce. Charla in Spanish means like a talk and then Luce is light. Um, it is a youth-led program that along with our social worker, nurse, um, our educational specialist, and our psychologist, they go into the field and give talks to churches, to businesses. They've been on the radio, to universities. We offer this virtually as well. Um, that's a very interactive um, kind of skit um, that has that just details all the way that HIV can be transmitted and the ways that it cannot be transmitted and what your rights are um, as an individual living with HIV. Um, specifically women um, that are maybe family planning or pregnant or fear that they have been exposed to HIV. And then we can connect them to the resources that they need, whether that's with our care or something that's local in their area. Um, our tagline is more education equals less discrimination, which is, is a simple phrase. Um, but the more people we reach about this, um, we're just really, really trying to combat stigma that way. I know that's really, really good. And, and hopefully a mentor example, you know, you guys, you know, our listeners of ours may be connected to a number of different organizations. I would just say that, you know, if you are in the U.S. and you or um, somebody that you know, love, a friend, a family member um, is uh, HIV positive or, or affected by HIV, I would definitely encourage you to, you know, reach out to Reach Ministries and and the work that Dan and his team are doing. And if you are a practitioner organization and, you know, Montaña de Luz and Cherish Uganda, you know, these are organizations that are very explicitly addressing HIV AIDS in their respective communities. Um, but HIV AIDS isn't only in Uganda and Honduras, it is in many other countries. And the need for education, as Anna is saying, is necessary. So um, I would encourage you guys to reach out to them if you are running an organization. And look, HIV AIDS is everywhere, right? It's here in the US, as Dan has shared. It's in Latin America. It's in Africa. It's certainly in Asia. It's it's throughout the world. So even getting your organization connected with with, uh, Anna or with Brent or their respective teams, um, it's really critical that we raise the level of awareness um, uh, around HIV AIDS. So I would just encourage you guys to definitely follow up uh, coming out of this uh, conversation because um, we do need more people to be aware. We do need more opportunities for community and to combat stigma, isolation, uh, lack of medical services, all the different things that we have discussed. So um, 
Before I let the three of you go, I got one just kind of final rapid fire question, 30 to 60 seconds. You know, when we talk about HIV AIDS, if I say HIV AIDS to a group of, you know, 20 different people, I might get 20 different responses, right? Because, you know, we've talked about about uh, lack of understanding or we've talked about, you know, you know, somebody thinks like, oh, I support a, you know, a ministry in sub-Saharan Africa. Somebody else might think, well, this is my experience because I have a family member that's HIV positive. We're going to get all these different. And then uh, within a lot of that, there's going to even be some, some, uh, some misinformation or people that haven't understood something correctly. So uh, we're going to go around the horn just one last time. What would be, and I'm going to start with Brent again, what would be the one thing you want people to know about vulnerable kids and families affected by HIV AIDS in the context uh, uh, that you serve in? Brent, why don't you go first? Yeah, I think I would be like, for most, it's not a choice. Like this wasn't a choice. And if we're going to be um, the most helpful and if, and if you're a believer, you're going to be the body of Christ, you're going to compassionately step alongside into that journey and help them walk it. And it's a long one. It's a, it is a long game. It's, it's not a quick one. And people need each other. And um, of course, good medical care is key, but they really need people to yeah, walk. That's good. Thanks, Brent. Anna, how would you respond? Um, We have said this many times on this call, but I I can't stress it enough. The population we work with is not only contending with a virus that requires medication to survive, but the emotional weight of stigma that requires keeping this secret sometimes also to survive. And for women and girls, especially living with HIV in Honduras, it, it can be very dangerous and the emotional exhaustion of keeping something secret of hoping and praying that nobody sees you pick up your medication. This makes vulnerable people more vulnerable and it makes survival difficult. And I think we need to acknowledge that. That's good. Thank you, Anna. Uh, Dan, what would be that one thing you would want people to know? Yeah, that's right. Right on, Anna. That all applies to the United States too. Uh, I would just like people to understand that HIV is not to be feared. Uh, In 28 years, no reach staff member or volunteer has contracted HIV from working with the people we, we love and serve. Um, the fact is we, we minister around the totality of people's lives. It often isn't talking a lot about HIV, but, but all the other things that if you think about how do you contract HIV? So a child's been adopted from overseas and they've been torn out of their culture and now there's trauma, uh, and all kinds of things like that. So, uh, just have the compassion to understand that if you know a child or an adult with HIV, there's a whole lot more going on there. Uh, and let's just respond with love. Well, that is a great place to end it. Uh, Dan, Anna, Brent, thank you guys so much for uh, being on the show uh, with us. Uh, I feel like I've been edified and uh, more informed and even a growing compassion uh, to serve children and families that are affected by HIV AIDS. And, and thank you for each of your guys's ministries and um, that you have continued on, you know, uh, 
for years, whether, you know, you formerly were a hospice or formerly were an orphanage or, you know, the conversation has changed in the U.S. Each of you guys have uh, continued on uh, to serve this very vulnerable population. So thank you guys for coming on the show. Um, and again, to our listeners, I would just encourage you guys uh, reach out, reach out to any of these uh, individuals, uh, reach out to us at One Million Home. Uh, we would love to uh, connect you uh, so that we can all uh better address, uh, you know, the needs of families and children that are affected by HIV AIDS. And as always, we hope that you take everything that you hear here on Think Orphan and that you use it and apply it so that you can love and serve orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.